The New Testament reading today will be from Ephesians chapter 5, starting at verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. But immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among saints, and there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting which we are not fit, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty, that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. Trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. For it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. But all things become visible when they are exposed by the light, for everything that becomes visible is light. For this reason it says, Awake, sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Therefore be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time, because the days are evil. So then, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your hearts to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, to God, even the Father. Let's pray together as, as we sit. Father, we praise you that you are a speaking God and today we pray that you would make us a listening people and our prayer is that our hearts would be moved by the gospel, that our lives would reflect the beauty and the wonder of our Lord Jesus Christ in whose precious name today we pray. Amen. Well, it's often said that imitation is the sincerest form of flattery, and it is, because the reality is that we always imitate those around us we admire. It's something that we all do without realizing it. Imitation is a behavior where we observe and then replicate someone else. It actually leads to the development of traditions and ultimately of culture. Studies show that infants in the second half of their first year will start imitating certain things from their parents, raising arms and smiling, attempting at speech. There's then huge progress in the second year as they begin to uh, move on to basic skills and uh, prejudices and ideas and taboos and posture as well as language. But a growing number of scientists have noticed that actually 
people are not really innovators at all, even when they reach adulthood. We're not so much homo sapien, which really means man the knower, we're really homo imitus, man the imitator. And in a famous study that was done some years ago, a group of scientists had a box with an object inside it, and they had chimpanzees and children. The chimpanzees moved to the box to open the lid to get the thing inside that they could see because it was perspex. But the children saw the parents, first of all, hitting it with a stick and then opening it. And even though the stick had no purpose, the fact that they had seen it done by the parents meant that they had replicated it mindlessly. And the reality is that so many of us are like that. We copy those around us without thinking about it in the way that people think and speak and the values that people develop, mindlessly without thinking about it, we copy others. The reality is we will imitate someone, but the question is, who? And last week, Paul's command was clear. We must no longer copy the godless pagan culture around us. We must, he says, no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. That's who we're not to copy. But who are we to copy? And the answer in verse 1 is extraordinary. As the key command emerges for us, as Paul announces, therefore be imitators of God. The Greek word uh, imitate there is literally the word mimic. We are to mimic God. And Augustine viewed this as the key idea of the Christian life. It is the key aim and goal of salvation. So God says, be holy because I am holy. Jesus says, be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. We are created to reflect God in his likeness. And at the end of the age, we will perfectly reflect Jesus in his perfect likeness. And therefore, the goal of salvation now, as the Spirit enables us, is to grow in the likeness of God. Like little pocket mirrors, as you open us up, we are to see in ourselves something of God, walking, talking, living, breathing pictures of God. So what does the mimic do? They study their subject, Donald Trump or Joe Biden. They watch them closely. They listen to the accent, the raised eyebrows, the weird mannerisms, the tilt of the hats. And this, says Paul, is what we are to do with God. And what we are to mimic, verse 2, is his love. Live in love. And the place we'll see the love of God is in the action and life of the Lord Jesus. Verse 2, for he loved us and he gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Because the place we see God in all of his love is in the self-giving nature of Jesus at the cross of Calvary. For in that single act on our behalf, he deliberately and willingly went to the cross of shame to take our own guilt and sin as he paid our debt in full, securing our forgiveness and delivering us from sin for all time. And now as a forgiven people, Given the perfection of Christ, we are included into a brand new humanity of united joyful love. And therefore the church and Christians, we are to be copycats. 
We are to observe and study and then mimic our perfect role model, the Lord Jesus Christ. His perfect life and his sacrificial death is the template. The Christian, if you like, is to be a photocopy of the cross of Christ, of the person of Christ. As you put the sheet on the machine, it takes the original and copies it. The original is the cross. It's Christ. And we are to copy him with our lives. And it's not that this love now is an alien thing we can't quite grasp. Because look who we are, says Paul. We are his beloved children. We've been born again into his new spiritual family and therefore have the new spiritual DNA of love. This love is not beyond us now or alien to us now. Rather, the love of Jesus has flooded our hearts as Christ has taken up his residence within us. So it's not that I have to crank out this love from an ice-cold, barren heart uh, in the desert of sin. Rather, I'm to open the floodgates from which the overflowing reservoir of God's grace will overflow out from the love of Jesus he has already poured in to us. But how is the rubber to hit the roads? What is this, this love to look like in practice? Paul's point is that it's not to be hypocritical or nominal. It is to be deep and radical it is cruciform in the sense that it is cross-shaped. And in the rest of chapter 5, what Paul shows us is the shape of this love. And if you've got your sheets in front of you, we're going to see from verses 1 to 3, it's going to involve a radical purity that denies sinful selfishness, and then a radical love that prioritizes gospel needs. First, a radical purity that denies sinful selfishness, because if you think about it, the great roadblock to this life of love is my sinful self-centeredness. It pervades all we do. Sin, a tiny three-lettered word in which I stand tall right in the middle. The motto of sin is me first, you last. We see it from the mouth of the very youngest child. What about me? And from crib to casket, from the beginning of life to the end of life, we are focused on ourselves, absorbed in ourselves, and obsessed by ourselves. So now picture a cemetery, a deep 20-foot hole in the ground, six feet by three. Now look at the caskets and imagine inside the corpse because the corpse is you. Because the moment we came to Christ, we were baptized into him, and our sinful nature died. It's now as if there is a headstone. Anthony Thomas Jones, moment of death, 1990. I think it was June the 1st. As I submitted to Jesus, it was the end of sinful, selfish self. Now it's in the casket, in the grave, dead, buried, and gone. Because Paul's point 
is that we have been included into a new, joyful, united humanity of love. And either side of the command here, as we look up to the tail end of chapter 4 and down into the body of chapter 5, we discover what must now go. Sin, says Paul, is to be fought and killed and murdered and eradicated and exterminated and expunged and annihilated. There is to be no sin trace left in our lives. For sin destroys the unity of the faith. Me first, you last, vandalizes the gospel of saving love. And so it's as if in chapter 5, Paul parks the tank of the gospel on our lawn. And now the gun turret of saving grace must take out every remaining pocket of resistance, every remaining silo of rebellion in our lives, every remaining trace of wickedness and evil. This is what it means to have Jesus live in your hearts as he establishes his throne within us. It means that we are engaged by his spirit in a holy war, a jihad against all remaining sin. So look up to chapter 4 and verse 31. For the first area that has to go is miserable resentment. Paul says, Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice. The word Paul uses here implies a sour spirit, out of which pours sour speech. Quoting Aristotle, one commentator puts it like this, the attitude is an embittered, and resentful spirit which refuses to be reconciled. Here is the sour puss. And this soured resentment leads to anger and slander and malice. And this kind of behavior cannot be tolerated in the human heart, says Paul, nor can it ever be tolerated in the local church. These people destroy churches continually upsets, nothing positive to say, spiritual depressives, threatening the joyful unity of this church of love. In fact, speaking of his own church, a pastor in England uh, texted me this week about something going on there, and I was struck by it. He said this, people love to find a petty complaint when they have a huge spiritual problem. This attitude is inimical to the gospel. It is counter-Christian. It is anti-gospel. So much so that Martin Lloyd-Jones in the book that we're reading, Spiritual Depression, puts it like this. A miserable Christian is, in a sense, a contradiction in terms. He's right. For joy is the emotion of salvation. Lloyd-Jones continues, nothing then is more important than that we should be delivered from a condition which gives other people looking at us the impression 
that to be a Christian means to be unhappy or sad or morbid, that the Christian is someone who scorns delights and lives laborious days. But the corrosive power of self-pitying misery can only be kicked to the curb as we acknowledge the amazing grace of the overflowing love, of the unconditional acceptance, of the unmerited mercy of Jesus Christ, fully ours in him through God's abundant love. For what has Jesus done for you but delivered you from an eternity in the hell that you deserve? for an eternity in the paradise of glory that awaits us. Only the gospel can break my sad and caustic heart, but break it, it must. The gun turret of saving grace now moves to a second enemy position, that of sexual immorality, chapter 5, verse 3. As Paul says, immorality and Impurity and greed must not even be named amongst you, as is proper among the saints. Verse 4, there is to be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting for the people of God, but giving thanks. The Bible is very clear that sex is a great gift from a good God. And the great gods give sex for a very particular context, which is committed, lifelong, heterosexual marriage between two people. But sex is like a fire. In the contained safety of the fireplace, it brings great blessing. The fire warms the house. Sex is given for three main reasons the procreation of children as a remedy against sin and for the companionship of mutual love. But you've got to be careful with the fireplace for if the sparks fly out, it's not long before the rug begins to smolder and then the curtains begin to engulf in flames. And at that point, the fire that is such a blessing in the home isn't actually constructive, but destructive, as the whole house fills with carbon monoxides and as everybody within it is burnt to death. At the heart of holiness is this sense of separation. The word holy means to be separated out. God is holy because he is separated out from his world in perfect purity. And as we are called to belong to God, we are separated out to belong to the God who is separated out. And all of the holiness codes of the Bible are to do with a separation out from, as lines are drawn, as we are demarcated out. So a husband and wife are demarcated out, united, and demarcated in the marriage service is a clear leaving and a clear cleaving to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, till death us do part. But for Paul now, there are three threats to this covenant union. First, he says sexual immorality. Then he says impurity. And third, covetousness. The word sexual immorality is the word porneia, used throughout the Bible of any sexual activity outside 
of monogamous heterosexual marital union. The word impurity he uses here has the sense of being unclean. We might say dirty, morally corrupt. This is the person without any moral ethic, no moral compass or standards. Nothing is off limits for them anymore. And then third, he uses the word covetousness. For to covet is to desire. The picture is of lust, of a hunger, if you like, of a craving. So the actor Michael Douglas once said this, speaking of sexual temptation, every time it's like a wave that sweeps over me, I am powerless every time, and I have run the most incredible risks. Let's pause then as we think about this material, because there's a huge application for how we dress, perhaps a particular word to younger women, be careful that you don't dress in a provocative way that stumbles younger men around us. There's an application then, isn't there, for how we relate. Be careful that you don't relate in a flirty way that intimates sexual interest to somebody who's not your husband or wife. There's an application for what we watch. Be careful where you go online. And in my own view, do not Give your children a smartphone. That is insanity. This covetousness is a greedy desire to exploit others to satisfy self. A huge issue in pre-Christian Ephesus, a titanic problem in post-Christian America. For the pornographic industry is worth an incredible $17 billion in the States. And according to the statistics, Christian men aged 18 to 30, 77% of Christian men 18 to 30 look at pornography monthly with 36% viewing it on a daily basis. Indeed, if the statistics are to be believed, 50% of people in our pews are looking at or could be addicted to pornography today. Paul's point is that this kind of impurity is the opposite of love. For engaging in lust like this, I vandalize the gospel of love. I wreck the marriage. I destroy the family. I harm children. I abuse the exploited, and I pollute society. If this is, by the way, a um, problem for you, come and talk to me later on because the whole point is the gospel of grace is here to help and heal. So if this is an issue for you, please do not live in this prison anymore. The gospel will bring freedom, but let's talk about it uh, together. Because Paul is radical in his treatment plan, there mustn't even be a hint Verse 4, no filthiness or silly talk, nor coarse jesting or anything that's not fitting, but thanks. He's actually saying, don't even talk about this stuff. Don't actually engage in conversations about this stuff, because that raises our curiosity, and it leads us into this stuff. Don't, don't joke about this stuff. Because actually, if you look at the history of how the progressives have won the sexual revolution, it is largely through comedy. 
And if I had another life, I think the area of exploration for a PhD for me might be the use of comedy in the Cultural Revolution. Because films come out and comedies come out and jokes are told and stand-up comedians tell us jokes about this stuff. And the point is, if it's funny, it's not dangerous, is it? But it is dangerous, says Paul, isn't it? It's like rat poison. It kills our souls, destroys our marriages, and wrecks our cultures and churches. No, says Paul, look at your status. We are dearly loved children. He says we are children of light. He actually says we are lights in the Lord. When the late queen was growing up with her sister, Princess Margaret, before they ever headed out to a party with friends, the then queen would turn to them and say, now children, remember, royal children, royal manners. It wasn't go out and show royal manners so that you can remain in the royal family. It was the inverse of that. It was your status is extraordinary. Here you live with the king and I at Buckingham Palace, royal children. That's a secure status. But the secure status and the privilege of it must lead to the responsibility. Royal children, she says, royal manners. And the royal manners that Paul is after is this walk of wisdom. We are not to walk as the Gentiles do, but walk as children of lights. And if dire straits were here today, they would talk to us about the walk of life. That's the picture. The walk is the whole of our lives. The privilege is that we are children of lights. Children of lights and righteousness. But what if, hypothetically speaking, our privileged status fails to motivate us? What if, hypothetically speaking, there's a cognitive dissonance between who we are in Jesus and how we live? What if the great news of God's saving grace, of the amazing love that's been poured into our hearts, doesn't quite move us away from bitter resentments or sexual immorality? What if we can't quite join the dots, or if still there's no desire to live the godly life? How can Paul help us What should Paul say to us? The answer is, he will need to startle us with the most sobering warning of all. And that's what he does next, verse 5. If we won't be moved by the grace of God, then perhaps, verse 5, we will need to be warned by the coming judgments of God. For you know, verse 5, with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Paul's point is that living this way isn't silly or just unwise or that if you live this way, you'll fail to reach your potential. It's not even that it'll screw your life up and leave lasting scars. Nor is it that it will destroy your family or cause scandal to the gospel or lead you to church discipline. His point is that it will be a barrier to entering into heaven. Live this way consistently and unrepentantly, and Paul says you're not heading for heaven. Bitter resentment, sexual immorality, 
This, by the way, is why as a church we must engage in the sexual revolutionary culture wars. We can't be spiritual pacifists and assume our church is like a spiritual Switzerland, a safe neutral zone, and we don't have to talk about this stuff. No, Trojan, horse-like, it will enter into our church. It's why we can't wear the rainbow lanyard at work. It's why we can't introduce the vocabulary of diversity, tolerance, equality, and inclusion. And by the way, those words will never be used in the pulpit here because they are tools of the sexual revolution, Trojan horse-like, designed to lure us into thinking that these lifestyles are the same as the gospel. But the sexual revolutionaries are after the destruction of the family, which is their key strategic aim. Yet ours is a culture of fluid sexuality. So is it really A and B, black and white? Surely somebody here is saying, isn't it more 50 shades of gray? Paul says, no. This kind of living leads us to hell. And the way he puts it is so startling. Have a look at the text. It's not that we were once in darkness and now we're in light. It's once we were darkness and now we are light. And this is why real Christianity is always on a direct collision course with a progressive culture of diversity, tolerance, and inclusion. Because the picture here is not of radical inclusion, but of sobering exclusion for those who won't repent. Because of these things, says Paul, the wrath of God is coming on the sons of disobedience. Excuse me, sorry, aren't we John 3.16 Christians? Yes. For everybody who turns to Christ is forgiven as their sins are washed away forever. We are John 3.16 Christians, but excuse me, we are also Ephesians 5.6 Christians. For the free grace of Christ at the cross of Calvary leads to repentance and submission to Christ. Pastorally, let me now tell you what Paul is not saying. He's not saying that the ongoing struggle disqualifies us from heaven. He's not saying that if life is a continual battle with sin and we keep falling and failing, we are excluded from heaven. No, he's talking about the persistent, consistent, knowing, deliberate, uncaring pattern of refusing to yield my life to Christ. That's the bar to heaven. But the person who is struggling and battling and falling and failing and kneeling at the cross of Christ is forgiven, forgotten forever. For Bonhoeffer puts it like this, when Christ calls a man, he bids us come and die. Well, I love musicals now that I'm married, and one of my favorites um, is Mary Poppins, but my second favorite is actually My Fair Lady. George Bernard Shaw wrote it in 1913, and it was based on his play Pygmalion, and it depicts the wonderful Cockney Eliza Doolittle, who in Covent Garden one day meets the rather arrogant Edwardian English proper gentleman, 
Henry Higgins, who hears her grating accent and decides something must be done as she is put into elocution le le lessons. And he wages a bid with a friend. Let's see if I can pass her off as a duchess at the embassy ball. We watch as poor Eliza tries to learn. The rain in Spain falls mainly on the plain. The water in Majorca doesn't taste like what it ought to. And on we go as we watch poor Eliza trying to get it right under the watchful and arrogant eye of Professor Henry Higgins. And then the breakthrough comes at the Epsom races. But then she slips back as she starts shouting at her horse. And we watch Elijah. And we see how she tries to make progress and does, yet keeps slipping back into Cockney. But as I watch Eliza Doolittle, progressing and yet relapsing, progressing and yet relapsing, I see, spiritually speaking, a picture of myself against the powerful headwinds of sin and Satan. So Paul's wisdom is to look to Christ to understand the world and to understand the word and to apply the word to the world, to live, he says, as children of lights. And that leads us to the command of verse 14, which really is this, wake up. Verse 14, Paul says, for this reason, it says, awake, sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. The verse is taken from Isaiah 52, where the prophet is announcing the arrival of God into the world to bring judgment and salvation. It's dramatic, this breaking in of the rule of God into his world. He's coming to judge his enemies and to save his people. And Isaiah says, this then is how the people should respond. Awake, put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, for the holy city is there, and in it there will be no more of the unclean. One of the most important disciplines, then, is being able to tell the time. It's the first lesson in elementary school, the big hand and the little hand. It's one of the most disorientating things about international travel. What time is it? And yes, I did notice as you ran into church this morning at your 7.45, that was actually our 8.45. I love this day when the clocks go forwards. But this morning, Paul is wanting to say, wake up. Wake up, verse 15. Careful how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of your time, because the days are evil. The call is to a awakenness. The call is to know the time. What is the time? Well, now is the time of the kingdom. Now is the time of salvation. Now is the time for growth. Because soon is the time for judgment when Jesus returns. Time is running out, like the egg timer or the stopwatch. The Scottish missionary puts it like this, Robert Murray McShane, only an inch of time, and then the eternal ages roll on forever. And this picture here of taking the time and buying the time is really borrowed from the players on the pitch, the whistle's about to go off, or the student in the exam hall, or the dealer on the stock market floor. 
We have to seize the time, snatch every opportunity. In all of our goals and plans and aims and agendas, they ought to be filled with the gospel. Wake up, says Paul. Wake up. It's like talking to a teenager in bed, in a stupor. The alarm clock is going off. Wake up, says Paul, into holiness of life. It's urgent because this is the time of the kingdom of God. What then does it mean to wake up? And Paul says in verse 14 and following, it is to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Verse 18, do not get drunk on wine. That leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the spirits. What does it mean to wake up? The answer is to be filled with the Holy Spirits. And he deliberately chooses the picture here of, of, a, of a drunk under the influence, can't walk straight, slurred speech. And the picture of the drunk is really a picture of the person affected by the spirit. Just as the spirit affects us, um, then the drunk is affected by alcohol. So picture the drunk under the influence. He can't walk straight. Now picture the Christian under the influence of the spirit. It is to say that every part of our lives is to be affected by the presence and power of the spirit. We'll think about this more next week, but what Paul actually does in verse 19 and following is then to give us four bullet points as to what this spirit-filled life, this spirit-filled church, this spirit-filled hearts is going to look like. It has nothing to do with charismatic excess, but everything to do with a gospel-centered, rational godliness. First, in verse 19, we're going to be speaking the gospel to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. A spirit-filled church will be full of the gospel, and we'll sing the gospel, because as we sing the gospel, we teach it. Luther realized the power of songs. He wrote, a mighty fortress is our God, to teach the truth of the Reformation so that it would spread, and it did. Before Luther, there was no singing in church apart from the choir in Latin. But as great theology is combined with great melody, it's powerful, reformational, and transformational. That's why it matters what we sing. The issue then on Sunday is not, well, do I like the song, or how does the song make me feel, or is the song a church favorite, but is the song true of the gospel? Will it enable us to grow in Christ? Paul says, sing the gospel to one another, seconds. Make melody in your heart to God's. John Stott says that our little hearts are like little musical instruments as we pluck the harp of our hearts to God's in joy and thanks. Verse 20, Paul says, thirdly, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord's, always for all. Even in the pain of life, Paul's writing from prison, always giving thanks to God for all in life. And the last area he identifies is submitting to others a military word, as we rank ourselves under others for their needs, for their goods, as we put ourselves out. Yet, all of this brings us to a very difficult question. 
Because in America today, within Christianity, a fault line has opened up. There are really two Jesuses, two Gospels, and therefore two different Christianities. The first Gospel is a Gospel of therapeutic comforts. Jesus is there to save me and to comfort me, but he's not really there to rule me or change me. So I come to Jesus, my therapeutic savior, but I, I don't come to Jesus, my sovereign king. But the true gospel is of a king who rules by his words, who convicts of my sin, a Jesus who demands I'm holy, a Jesus who demands I renounce sin, a Jesus who demands hearts, mind, soul, and strength. So which gospel will we go for? A gospel about my feelings or a gospel centered on the holiness of God's? And we will have to continually course correct in our culture of feelings. For to be a gospel-centered, Christ-honoring church is to be a church centered not on my feelings, but on the gospel. From gospel culture will come gospel thinking. Out of gospel thinking will come gospel conviction. Out of gospel conviction will come gospel change. Yet many want the foot in both worlds. We hedge our bets. We want to have Christ and feel good about ourselves. And Paul is saying that the true gospel is one in which sin is confronted. Holiness is demanded. Repentance is mandated. And whether that be in the area of miserable resentments, or whether that's in an area like sexual immorality, if Christ is to set up his throne in our hearts, there is to be a jihad, a holy war, as by the gospel of his grace, we are transformed by his love. May well be, as we finish, many of us feel cut down to size by our bitter resentments and sexual immorality. And I was so struck by the words of that first song. Come ye souls by sin afflicted, bowed with fruitless sorrow down. By the broken law convicted through the cross, behold the crown. Look to Jesus, look to Jesus. Mercy flows through him alone. Take his easy yoke and wear it. Love will make your obedience sweet. Christ will give you strength to bear it, while his grace shall guide your feet. Safe to glory, safe to glory, safe to glory, where his ransomed captives meet. Father, our prayer today is that you would make us holy. Help us by the power of your Holy Spirit to lay aside our sin and shame, to embrace the cross and submit to your crown. Fill us with your spirits as we lay aside bitter resentment 
sexual immorality, and all that offends against your word, and unite us in a gospel of saving love, because we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. <laughs>